since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? That is the perfect summary of the day. That is the word that we have been preaching and proclaiming in this pulpit since the beginning of this congregation. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, since love is at the center of everything we do, how can we keep from singing, praising, gathering, welcoming? And yet we tend to forget. I mean, the message is so clear, the, the duet was so beautiful, and yet somehow Monday comes along and the next thing you know, we're caught up and finding ourselves busy and overwhelmed with worry and anxiety and all the rest, and the music seems to have faded. Way back in the 1980s, I was a youth worker back then. I was in seminary, finished seminary, took a position as an assistant minister with primary responsibilities in youth. And there was something going on then that's actually kind of similar to what's happening in our culture today. Like, like in this moment, we tend to forget that love is at the center. Back in the 80s, it was the same thing. There were folks who were hearing things like greed is good. That was kind of a popular little mantra. And, and the one with the most toys wins. And I had kids in my youth group who were starting to feel as though there's got to be something more. I, I say kids. One of them contacted me last week. He'll be 50 in a couple of months. <clears throat> That's another problem for another time for us to discuss. I might make an appointment with Jim later and, and worry about that. But back then, their kids were like, is it really, is it about greed? Is it about getting more stuff? And then in 1987, this, this band called U2, lead singer was Bono. Lead guitarist was The Edge. They came out with an album that caught everyone's attention, especially this song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Now, the band's got great skills. Bono can sing. I want him to sing at my funeral someday. They've got all kinds of skills, and they're awesome. Julie and I went uh, and gathered with 80,000 of our closest friends at a football stadium in Cleveland last July to, to hear them sing. There was, something, there was something, though, more than just the power of their music, more than just the power of, of, their, of their musical skill that caught folks back then 30 years ago that still catches us today. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I might climb the highest mountaintops, scale the city heights, and yet Bono sings, I still haven't found. Like I said, when we were there last summer to hear them in Cleveland, 80,000 of us. And at one point, as they were singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, Bono dropped the mic and let the crowd sing. The lights went to complete, absolute dark, nothing but a few phones glittering out, out in the crowd. And we sang with one voice, and you could just feel the emotion we still, still haven't found. L later in the song, Bono proclaims, <clears throat> I believe in the kingdom come, when all the colors will bleed into one. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to know that he's, he's referring to the teaching of Jesus there, that someday when God's kingdom comes, love will be at the center of everything we do. Love will be the Lord of heaven and earth, and love will guide us in everything we do, and all of God's children will have enough food to eat, and all of God's children will be cared for, and all of God's children will have a place to live. And yet here we are in 2018, and we know, we know, we still haven't found it. Uh, last week, as I was working on this sermon, I thought of the, the U2 song, and then I remembered a book by Rabbi Kushner titled, When All You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough. Now, Rabbi Kushner has preached here before, spoken here on our campus. He's a brilliant scholar, a, an incredibly fine teacher and writer, a rabbi, of course. 
In that book, he, he wrestled with that same kind of idea. It came out coincidentally in 1987. He wrestled with the same kind of idea. You've gotten everything you ever wanted, and still there's this ache in your soul, this desire for there's got to be something else that fills us. In fact, early in the book, he, he summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes from the Bible. Ecclesiastes, it's in the Old Testament, in my opinion, was probably an aging preacher who looked out at his life with frustration. It's a fascinating book. It's, it's one that's kind of wedged in between the, the, the praise and the, and, and the joy. And it's sort of like this voice in the back of the church saying, hang on a minute, it's not that precious. Doesn't quite work that way, does it? He essentially says in his book, the book of Ecclesiastes, you're born, you work, and then you die. And he seems to be wondering out loud, is that all there is? There's a season for everything, a time to be born, a time to live, and a time to die, but it's just this frustrating word. And he echoes that same, from 2,500 years ago, that same feeling we have today. Is this all there is? Kushner says essentially that this one writing the book of Ecclesiastes, wants to learn how to live before he dies. He's afraid that he hasn't really lived because he's been so caught up in stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. He wants to find out if there's a life worth living before his life is over. And so that question is before us. When all have you ever wanted, is it enough? when you still haven't found what you're looking for, what is it? Exactly what is it we're dreaming of, hoping for, looking for, searching? What is it? Uh, of course, I, I know we might say, well, you know, there's, there are, we're pretty clear about some things. I'd like to see this and that and the other thing. I think it's Oscar Wilde, isn't it, who said, there's two tragedies in life, not ever seeing your dreams come true and seeing your dreams come true. There might be some truth there for us in this moment. I, I read about a, about a priest, Roman Catholic, who since he was in seminary had always dreamed of becoming a bishop. Well, 30 years after he graduated, he finally achieved that status. Went through all the proper work, did all the, took all the tests, did all the studies, everything. Finally, he was, he was proclaimed a bishop in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. And when the word got out uh, to all the congregations he, was, he had served, the first church he'd served right out of seminary, this small little country parish off in the woods, they called him up and said, we'd love to celebrate with you. Would you please come back and preach for us one Sunday? He said, I would love to do that. They called him up a couple of days before the service and said, by the way, we want you also do the children's moment. Do the children's moment first and then do the sermon. Well, he said, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Well, the day of the, of the service came and the sermon was ready to go. He had all of his notes in, in one place, but he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with the children's moment. And then he thought, ah, people are always asking me, what exactly does a, does a bishop do? This would, be an, this would be an opportunity for me to explain to the children and to the congregation. Here's what a bishop does. So he invites all the children down. They come and sit there on the chancel with him and gather around. He sits right in the middle of the children, and, and, and he says, Boys and girls, I'd like to uh, ask you a question. Does anyone know what a bishop does? And one boy immediately raises his hand. He said, Yes, son, what is it? He says, A bishop moves diagonally. <laughs> yeah, some of you think it'll be a late laugh coming out there, I'm sure. All his life, he dreamed of becoming a bishop, of finally being somebody, got what he wanted, and as far as the kids were concerned, he was a, nothing more than a game piece on a game board. You see, sometimes getting what we want isn't really what we're needing. What we want is to learn 
how to live before we die. I believe that Jesus knows this better than anyone else. The people that have flocked to hear him here in John chapter 6 have come primarily to hear him because their bellies were full. I mean, you might remember last week was the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes a few loaves of bread, a little bit of fish, and next thing you know, all 5,000 people, and probably more like 12 or 13 if you would count the women and the children who were most likely there. Maybe 10,000 people, 12,000, 13,000 people have been fed in this amazing way. And now here they are the next day and they find Jesus. He's gone to the other side of the lake. Can't believe he's done that. But they find him and they're like, okay, hey, we're here for more. Give us some more. And essentially Jesus is saying, your bellies were full yesterday and you just want another lunch. You just want another free meal. You want another Big Mac and fries. And you've come just because you want to see some more signs and miracles and wonders. And you want to be entertained. I understand why you're here. And there's kind of a little tone of anger in Jesus' words. A little bit of frustration that they're not quite getting what the message truly is. But then, as Morgan was reading, I hope you caught this, in between the lines, deeper down into the story, the people begin to say, okay, honestly, really, Jesus, Lord, we, we want to know, what, what is the bread of life? How, how can we be alive? What does it mean to be fully in the presence of God and living our lives that way? How can we receive this? I, I'm pretty sure on a Sunday morning, that if we asked ourselves these questions, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to, to live fully before we, we find our life at its end? We'd know kind of the answers. We'd, we'd say something, one of the cliches I've heard in the past is, do you want to make a living or do you want to make a life? Well, of course, the answer on Sunday morning is yes, we want to make a, we want to make a life. We know the answers on Sunday morning and then... Monday morning comes and the next thing you know, we're in traffic and we're hurrying and there's a long list of to-do items and we got this to do and that to do and the next thing and we're, we're cursing at red lights and we're stuck in the thing and my buddy John Ross, who used to be on the staff here, he's now a senior minister at a big church up in, up in Minneapolis, JR will say to you, you know, if you win the rat race at the end of the race, you're still a rat. We've, JR says that so often, we've told him just stop, we're tired of hearing it. But it's true, is it not? If you get everything you want and you still have this emptiness, what does that mean? You know, it's kind of funny. Our, our culture has picked up on this. I've told some of you this before, but they've picked up on this, this yearning, this desire, this emptiness in our souls, in our guts even, as it were, and they're finding that that's a way to, to sell things, to market things. There was a commercial that came out a few years ago for a car. Not really a car, not really an SUV, not really a truck, but it's kind of this cool vehicle. Anyway, the, the scene for the commercial opens with city streets and these gigantic hamster wheels. Have you seen this commercial? And there's a huge hamster and they're just spinning around, spinning around, spinning around. And all of a sudden, in the distance, this cool looking car comes weaving in, in and among these hamster wheels. And inside that car, which you can't quite exactly describe, are these four hamsters who are dressed in really hip clothes and, and there's some great music playing and they're, they're dancing to the music and you can just hear this, this hip hop theme pounding through the walls of, and, and, and what's the name of that car? If you buy this car, it's called the, the Kia Soul. In fact, I was so caught up in that, in that commercial, the next day I went out and test drove one of those cars. <laughs> I was a little bit small for me, at 6'2", I couldn't quite fit in it very comfortably, but you see how caught up I was? We, we think, oh, if I just get the right car, the right stuff, the right house, the right furniture, the right job, the full enough bank account or pension, or, and then all those things line up, and then there's Rabbi Kushner asking again. There's the rabbi we named Jesus asking again. Is that all you came for? 
a free meal, a slick car. Jesus doesn't have a slick chariot to drive around in, but his teaching is so clear. He reminds the crowd that they're not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that brings life, the eternal life. And by the way, I want to make it, take an aside here, be clear about that phrase, eternal life. Oftentimes when we encounter it in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, people see that and they think, oh, that's a reference to heaven. That's a reference to what happens after we die. It is not. Now, in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, there is a promise there, and it comes according to the writer of the book of Revelation from Jesus, that in the end of all ends, God will create a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and God will make all things all things will be made new. Everything, all of creation, including you and me and anyone who ever has or will live. That's the promise at the end of the Bible. But here what Jesus is talking about, eternal life, is talking about living now in the unending presence of God. Do you hear the beauty and the power of that? It's about choosing to live now, this eternal life, in the unending presence of the very God we worship. It's a way of saying, look, you can get out of the rat race. You can jump off of the, of the hamster wheel. You can find a life that's worth living. It's a reminder of what Jesus says at another place in the gospel. If you want to find your life, you must lose it. So we give up trying to be the one with the most toys and allow love to be the primary goal in all that we say and do. But again, allow me, if I may, to be frank. I've sat out there in those chairs and those pews. I've sat in, in pews and, and chairs and congregations and church camps and conferences and assemblies all across the United States. I've been to church in South Africa and Haiti and Mexico and Jamaica. I was on a Jamaica mission trip with this church 20 years ago. And I've heard sermons like this. And if I'm sitting next to my wife, I'll elbow her and say, Julie, boy, did you hear that? Boy, that was some good preaching. Yeah, make love at the, put love at the center of who you are. Put love at the center of everything you do and make sure that mercy and forgiveness and grace and, and hope and justice are real and do everything we can to, to work to make these things come real, not just in our own neighborhood, but in our communities, in our country and around the world. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. Preach it. Let us hear it. And then it's Monday morning and the next thing you know, I'm cursing a red light. I hate to say it. But it's true. The next thing I know, I can't even enjoy my Monday because I'm so caught up and worried about Tuesday. Monday's my day off, but Tuesday's my busiest day other than Sunday, and I got so much to do, and it just the frustration rushes in, and the anxiety, and the worry, worry about stuff that most likely is never going to happen. And still, maybe it's not, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's none of us. But I suspect a few. We know, we know, we know the message, we understand exactly what matters, and yet Monday comes, and the light turns red, and we're late again, and no wonder Jesus comes to Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion, and he stands on the hill outside of the city and weeps. He weeps because they do not know what makes for peace, peace of mind, peace of heart peace in the community. It's interesting, though. The more things change, the more they do stay the same. There's a book that came out in 2001 written by David Myers, The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. 
There's something about our culture today that just seems to pull these things back into my attention. There's something about the way we're fighting and struggling and each side is trying to win and there's this political polarization and no one seems to be able to stand the other and we can't have conversations over a simple meal without it debilitating into screaming and yelling and fighting. Oh my goodness, it just feels so tense everywhere we go. And, and yet, as, as Myers pointed out 17 years ago and still true, true now, we have more in this country than any other country ever has in the history of the world. Now listen to the list, I and mean, we have, we're better educated, better housed, better fade, paid, better fed, healthier, stronger, more human rights, faster communication, and yet, listen to this list, he's done the research on this. The divorce rate has doubled. Teen suicide, since 1960, teen suicide rate has tripled. Recorded violent crime has quadrupled. The prison popu population has quintupled. Depression today is 10 times greater than it was before World War II. Now, some of the pushback on this might be that these issues were there in 1960. They were there in the 1930s. We just weren't as public and open about it. There's some, there's some strength to that argument, that indeed in 1960, you just didn't talk about being depressed. You didn't talk about some of these issues, but the facts are still there. He has the research to back them all up. We are the greatest, richest, most powerful country the world has ever seen. And yet at the end of the day, how many millions go to bed at night wondering, will I ever discover how to live before I die? It's that question that wakes me up at 3 a.m. in the morning, more than any other. Oh, I worry about the church, I worry about a lot of things, I got a long list there too, but trust me, at the end of that list, there's that question. How can I fully be the pastor this church has called if I'm still wrestling with what it means to be alive. Do you think it's possible finally now to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to discover eternal life, that, that life in the unending presence of God, that right now it's right there before us? I, it, it might be, but sometimes I worry that what happened in Psalm 106 might be happening among us in this great country. Martin Marty is a great, a great theologian. He's a, a church historian. He's the one who brought this to my attention several years ago. Psalm 106 talks about the time the, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they were whining and moaning and complaining. And finally, God said, fine, fine, whatever you want. Here you go. You can have it. And then God says, and here's a wasting disease. The psalmist goes on to say, in fact, in the King James, he says, he, God allowed their lusts their lusts to be answered, and yet, and yet they received a wasting disease. Leanness was sent into their souls. Now, please know, at the end of Psalm 106, God moves back into the community, and God brings grace, and, and faith, and hope, and love, and forgiveness, and joy, and all the rest, and there's, and there's praise there. But in that moment of wanting everything they, of getting everything they ever wanted, they also found a leanness an emptiness, a wasting. What did we say? Be careful what you ask for, because you just might get it. So Jesus' instructions are, are, are clear. They're extraordinarily clear. Work for the food that endures for eternal life. What does that look like? 
Well, it happens, it begins when we discover the courage and the passion we need to make sure that all of God's children are fed and nourished, that all of God's children are not locked in cages, but are instead welcomed and loved, that all of God's children are given enough to survive and move forward, that the joy of heaven will come down, that grace and mercy and forgiveness will be made real, not just in an, in an academic, theological kind of way, but in an actual practical way that you and I practice with each other. We'll find this life when we get passionate about loving the world, and I use that word passionate on purpose. We'll, get, we'll find the life we want when passion moves us in the direction that God calls us to go. There's a pastor that I read all the time. His name's Kerry Newhoff. He has a blog, and it's a lot of it's good advice for preachers, some of it's advice for congregations. I've been reading him late in the last few weeks, and he writes about something that happened in his church. He started this church with like a dozen members. Several years later, they're into the hundreds. A few years after that, they're now into the thousands of members. They see 1,500, 2,000 on a Sunday morning. They have four campuses. They're online live at 9 o'clock in the morning through 11 o'clock in the morning, all kinds of amazing things. But he wrote recently about a time that their church went through a doldrums and, in fact, even went into a little bit of a decline. And they got worried about what's really going on. Why, what's happening? They, they did a good, great self-examination. They looked at everything they were doing. And they said, we're, we're, we're polishing everything perfect. We got everything going. They, they, they have giant screens in this church. The screens are working well. And our, our, our camera people who work our, 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 um, our live broadcast are doing amazing work. And they kept looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. And finally somebody said, we're polished, but we ain't got no passion. And that for them became their mantra. Passion beats polish. Passion beats polish. Now, you go look at their website. It's pretty slick. It's a nice website. And you watch Kerry preach. He's a good preacher. He's got tremendous skills. But they've never forgotten that what matters in the long run is not perfection, not providing entertainment that makes everybody feel good, but instead becoming passionate about their mission, passionate about their desire to share the good news of God's love for the world. The same is true of your life. What are you looking for? What is it you yearn for in, the, in your heart of hearts, way deep down in your soul, deep in your guts? It's the bread of life, Jesus says. It's the joy of heaven come down. It's a life lived toward justice, peace, hope, mercy, and grace. This is the bread that Jesus has come to give to us and to the world. Let us find the courage we need to receive it. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Open our wills that we might be prepared and ready to serve wherever you call us and send us. Give us the courage of Christ, the strength of the Spirit, and the hope of creation itself. In Christ's name, amen.